Amen. Amen. Thank you much for your great singing today. Let's open our Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Mark, chapter 8. The book of Mark, chapter 8. As you're doing that, let me uh, just say a word to you about our dinner theater right around the corner. The tickets will be going on sale not, not too long from now. I hope you're making a list and checking it twice. Uh, one lady left the church last Sunday. She said, I already have 10 people that's committed to come with me. Uh, well, it doesn't make, make any difference how many you have. Uh, we want to use this as a church as a real outreach. We want to bring our friends, people we work with, uh, people that we do business with in the community, people that would probably never come to church for a regular service, but they would come for a dinner and they would come for a musical program. This is a golden opportunity. Don't miss out on it. Uh, make a list, start praying over it, and then approach these people and say, listen, I want you to be my guest and uh, come and be a part of um, our dinner theater here at the church. In Mark chapter 8, we want to begin reading today in verse number 18. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he is uh, saying this, Having eyes, do you not see? Uh, and having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? Jesus here is asking his disciples, listen, uh, in other words, I've been with you for so long, can't you see? Don't you understand? And so he begins to review just a minute with them about what, what he's been doing. And uh, he says, when I broke the 5,000, he gives them a little quiz. Uh, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, 12. They each one had, each of the apostles had a basket to take home. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. Uh, and he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Uh, the disciples were slow of understanding. You and I are also. Uh, it takes us a long time for this whole spiritual thing to kind of like gel in our mind, uh, to, to kind of come to grips with, hey, listen, this is what God is trying to say to me. He says, how is it that you do not understand? After all these miracles that I have been performing uh, in your sight, and you still don't understand? Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and he begged him to touch him. Um, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Uh, it is thought to be that this is the only gradual miracle that we have in the Bible right here. Uh, most of them were just like that, just like that. This one just kind of like uh, took a little bit of time. Uh, this man received his eyesight gradually. He says, first of all, he said, I, I see men like trees walking around. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. First of all, he didn't see clearly. Secondly, he did see clearly. And he sent him 
away to his house, saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. In other words, Jesus said, shh, don't tell anybody about this right now. Uh, the reason why is Jesus wanted to get his disciples alone to talk to them. And if this man went and spread the whole word around, he would be bombarded, Jesus would be bombarded by all these people coming to him for healing. Verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. On the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And of course people were saying all sorts of things. They were curious. They were, they were saying, hey, listen, let's look, let's look at their response. So they answered, uh, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah and others one of the prophets, just a, one in the long line of, uh, of succession of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And uh, this is the critical question right here. This is the question that everybody needs to have the proper answer to, who is Jesus? Uh, who do people say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ uh, or the Messiah. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. The disciples too came to this realization finally that he was uh, the Messiah. And he said, shh, let's not spread that around right now. And he began to teach them uh, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed after three days rise again. Then he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You can always count on Peter, can't you? Uh, he, uh, he's the guy, uh, somebody said, uh, ready, shoot, aim. You know, he just never, it just whatever came to his mind, he did it. He was so impulsive uh, and uh, overly responsive. Uh, and he began to rebuke the Lord. I, I, I don't think that's a good idea, really. But when he had turned around and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Uh, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, you're thinking like a man, not spiritual things. And when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it. And this is one of my favorite, all-time favorite passages right here. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Boy, that is so powerful. In our world, you know, people, are, it's all about them. It's all about making life cushy, comfortable, uh, create my little perfect utopian environment and boy that's just going to be so awesome for me for me for me and me and Jesus said if you do that for you you lose your life but if you serve me and you serve the preaching of the gospel then you save your life and then he then he gets then he like underscores it with this powerful statement but what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You and I look around everywhere and people are trying to get everything uh, to provide uh, them the, only what Jesus can provide. And uh, so he said, listen, the soul's most important. It's interesting, as we've been looking through the book of Mark, I'm just, I'm just uh, taken back at how Mark has come back strong in his spiritual life. 
And the thing that brought this to my attention in, in my reading, I was reading in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, and uh, 2 Timothy is known as uh, Paul's famous last words. Uh, that was the last book that he, that he wrote. And uh, toward the end of it, he said this, bring Mark with you when he comes. He will be helpful to me. Now, that's interesting to me because remember, John Mark was that helper way back in Acts chapter 15 that departed from Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. They were just into the journey, and, and John Mark said, I'll see you later. And he kind of cut out, and we, we don't know the reason why he cut out, but he cut out. And uh, so the next time they were forming their missionary party, Paul and Barnabas, uh, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him, and Paul said, no, no, one strike, you're out with me. Uh, he didn't have much grace for John Mark. And so thank God for Barnabas. Bar Barnabas is known as the son of consolation and encouragement. He put his arm around Mark and he says, listen, you can go with me. And so he made the right decision. He encouraged John Mark, even though John Mark failed. He encouraged him and he came back strong. And you and I are reading his writings today in the church. And Paul said, listen, whenever you, whenever you send the things that I need, send John Mark because he's going to be a help to me. He came back strong. Well, our topic this morning is this, miracles and their meaning. Miracles are meant to authenticate the claims of Christ. Uh, you know, anyone can get up on a, uh, a soapbox and proclaim their God. You know, you could go downtown Pittsburgh Market Square and and I'm sure that people have done it before down there, and they've proclaimed all sorts of things, but that doesn't make it true. Uh, uh, whenever Jesus claimed that he's God, he authenticated it by the things that he did. They were the outward proof of his deity and messiahship. Miracles authenticate the claims of Jesus. They also show us the compassion of Jesus. You know, Jesus had this... Um, uh, this almost irresistible response when he saw people. And it, was, it went like this. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion upon them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And he said to the disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest. Uh, whenever he saw people, his heart just melted for them because behind every face there was a need and uh, Jesus loves the world so, so much that he came and died upon the cross for our sins. And so miracles show to the world repeatedly the compassion that Jesus had for people. John chapter 10, verse 25 Jesus answered them and he said, I told you and do you not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. He said, listen, you just look at the works that I've been doing. You have a question about me, who I am, look at the works that I've been doing. John chapter 14. Um, let's read this together this morning. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And so, you know, we look at this, this just rash 
of miracles that Jesus is performing, and he says, now you just look at this. Observe what I'm doing. Now, it's interesting that the very next verse, John 14, verse 12, is that verse about greater works. Remember that one? And greater works shall you do because I go to my Father, which is in heaven. You and I today are part of the greater works of which Jesus spoke in that particular passage, John 14, 12. And, and of course, uh, we could never do greater works in quality, could we? But Jesus was referring to quantity when he used the word greater works. Whenever he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit came down and the work of Christ exploded uh, to the place that here we are, all these many years removed, and we are a part of the greater works of which Jesus spoke. Uh, we are doing the work of Christ in our circle of influence. Every person in this church has a circle of influence. Everybody has a little parish over which God has placed you, people that look to you, people you work with, friends and relatives. Uh, you are, for all practical purposes, maybe not stated, you're their pastor, uh, and, um, and we're ministering to them. And Jesus said, listen, greater works, the work of Christ is going to explode. Ephesians 2.10, remember, says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God beforehand hath ordained that we should walk in them. Now, these miracles, of course, demonstrate the power of Jesus. They're seen. The power of Jesus is seen in his miracles. Look at verse number 18. He says, and do you not remember? What Jesus is saying, listen, is I want you to remember the miracles. And you know, that's not a bad thing for you and me today. And for those of us who journal our prayers, and I encourage everybody to do that every day, write down the things for which you thank and praise the Lord. You can go back and read over those things and remember the miracles that God has provided in you in your life. You know, we're kind of short-memoried, aren't we? Because we're flying through this life and somebody says, what did you do yesterday? And you said, oh, I don't have a clue what happened yesterday. Uh, what did you do two hours ago? I don't remember. We're just running so radically through the world. Uh, we need to remember the things that God has done for us. And, and so Jesus is trying to evoke here out of his disciples. Uh, listen, remember where you've been. Remember what you've seen. This idea is critical, what you've seen and what you've experienced. You know, miracles are spectacular. They get our attention. They're designed to do that. Uh, only, uh, remember, we talked about the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, that should have been, that should have been the, the clincher for the disciples. He brings up that, and then he brings up the feeding of the 4,000. Uh, you know, Jesus was a magnet. They ran to him. Uh, I can visualize caravans of people coming to him, bringing people on all sorts of buggies uh, for healing. But, you know, most of Jesus' miracles are not recorded in the Bible. Uh, he, committed so, he, uh, he performed so many of them. Remember, at the end of the book of John, uh, the scripture says, and many other miracles did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. 
But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and, might and, and by believing in that, you might have life through his name. And so there is an innumerable amount of miracles that are not recorded in the Bible. Uh, first and foremost, I believe at that particular time that everybody looked upon Jesus as the healer because everybody needed some sort of a physical touch from God. And uh, they found out that he could do this work, and so they, they came to him and they beseeched him for healing. Years ago, we used to take short-term missionary trips down to Haiti. And I remember one year we were down there when I was a young pastor. And when you go to those third world countries, almost everybody is young. Uh, the life expectancy in Haiti is about 50 years of age. You don't see to, you just see they're all young people because uh, mortality is, is so horrific in those places. I remember I met a young pastor and his wife. I went back the next year and I said, well, where's your wife? And he said, oh, she died. And she was very young. People die in those third world countries and, uh, from the simplest things. All sorts of just a simple intestinal problem. They die from those things because there's no medical care. Well, you know, Jesus was not selective in his healing. He didn't put the hard cases at the back of the line. Uh, he, uh, and tried to heal the easy ones up front. Uh, he healed everybody when they came to him. Uh, he was moved by all of their problems. Here in verse number 22, we have, and I don't know whether commentators are trying to make too much out of this or not because commentators love to make things more than they are. Uh, but this is a gradual, said to be a gradual miracle. This is the only one described. Uh, I, I read from them that they probably think that Jesus was sending a message to his disciples that truth comes gradually. Uh, and so it, it does, though, doesn't it? Truth comes gradually. How many times have you talked to somebody and you, you go like this and you say, why don't they understand? Why can't they get it? And so it takes a long, long time for spiritual truth to register. Um, and so Jesus told this man that he healed of his blindness, don't tell anybody. And then Jesus uh, took his disciples aside and he began to prompt them the prompting of Jesus. Who do people say that I am? Now, I'm sure there was a lot of discussion in here. And in order to get the full message of the discussion, we have to look in the other accounts of this story also. They said, a lot of people think you're John the Baptist. Well, King Herod thought for sure that Jesus was John the Baptist because, remember, he was the one who was responsible for the decapitation. He probably had nightmares about John the Baptist coming back to haunt him. Uh, and so a lot of people thought the word got out. We think this is John the Baptist. He's just come back. He's just back alive again. Uh, and then he says, listen, uh, he could be Elijah. Uh, you know, there was always an expectation that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And if you want to check that out in the Old Testament, it's found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that uh, Elijah would come before the Messiah. I was just reading about that the events of the Seder dinner at the Passover for the Jews. Uh, remember, they got together each year. They'd get together each year, and they, re they rehearsed their deliverance from Egypt. And whenever they have that particular meal, they set a place at their table for Elijah. They have an empty chair, 
and they have uh, a glass of wine and they're just hoping that Elijah shows up because that'll be a signal that the Messiah is on the way. They even open the door uh, and uh, so that Elijah won't have to even go to that trouble to get into their house. Um, now Elijah, uh, one of the rabbis, Joseph Toluskin, said that Elijah was a prophet uh, who would announce the arrival of the Messiah. He's believed to be one who will perform the final miracle before the coming of the Messiah. He shall reconcile the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers, written in Malachi chapter 3, verse 24. There was a saying among the rabbis when they were unable to resolve certain disputes that they suspended discussion until Elijah comes and resolves it. That'd be great to have as a counselor, wouldn't you? I can't figure it out. We'll just wait on Elijah. And so here the, the people be getting counsel walked out, and he says, well, the counselor says we have to wait for Elijah to come. He'll figure it out. That's always nice to have that in your pocket. Well, some people believe, believe that Jesus was John the Baptist. Other people believe that he was Elijah. Uh, but um, there was another belief, too, and that was that Jesus was the prophet described in Deuteronomy 18. 15. I think we have that. Let's read this together. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Now, these are the words of Moses right here. So Moses says, listen, there's going to be a prophet one of these days, and you're going to be like me. And so Jesus had a lot of the characteristics of Moses, didn't he? Uh, and uh, they wanted the same result out of Jesus that they got out of Moses. They wanted Jesus to go to the authorities and shake his finger and say, let my people what? Go, right? And they, and they said, listen, if Moses said that, we believe you're kind of a prophet like him. Some people believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of this particular prophecy given by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15. Then other people simply believed that he was one of the prophets, just in a long line of succession of prophets. Um, and, uh, and so they had lots of different ideas about Jesus. Just one other thing. Back in Matthew, they add Jeremiah to that list. And so people believed that, that Jesus could have been all these people, Elijah, Jeremiah, the prophet, one of the prophets, etc. And so the second question is posed, and Jesus said, who do you say I am? And that's the most powerful question. Uh, the answer that every person gives to this question will determine their eternal destiny. This is known in the Bible as the great confession. Peter comes back and he says, listen, uh, I believe that you are the Messiah, and the word, or, or the Christ, and the Greek word for Christ is anointed, which uh, literally means Messiah, and many of your Bibles have the word Messiah there. When we read the word Christ in our New Testament, we should always read the word Messiah. He says, we believe that you are the Messiah. Now, in Matthew's account, in Matthew 16, 16, uh, there's a, there's a little, it's, it's a little bit more full Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so there was some real good 
uh, realizations going on right here. The living God was the, one of the Old Testament names for God in contrast to dead idols. And so this is the confession of the church. This is the apostles' realization that makes a difference in their life. Now, we could dismiss Jesus if he couldn't prove his claim of who he was, couldn't we? If, uh, if we didn't know who Jesus was, there would be probably very little purpose for us to meet together in, in the church this morning. Uh, but if Jesus is indeed who he says he is, then that's every reason for us to meet together and worship him in spirit and in truth. Because he is, but he is God. And so in order to get the whole picture on this story, we're talking about the, the confession of Christ, uh, the confession here that Peter made. Uh, who do you say that I am? And uh, he said, Peter answered and said to him, and this is verse 29, you are the Messiah. And it's interesting that the story here uh, stops in Mark. But in Matthew, it does not stop. And uh, remember, the, remember the continuation of Matthew. He says, Jesus said to him, flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, Peter. Uh, and then he said, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my what? Now, some people believe that Jesus was referring to, to the confession of Peter, uh, that that was the bedrock of the establishment of the church. Uh, but others believe that Jesus is doing a play on words there. And the word Peter is the Greek word petros, which means a small stone. And he says, you're Peter, a small stone. And upon this rock, Petra, a foundation stone, I will build my church. We believe that the church is built on Jesus. He's the rock of the church. He's the foundation of the church. He's the cornerstone of the church. And you and I are living stones that he has incorporated into the church. Uh, he says, listen, upon this rock I'll build my church. The church is a group of called out people together to serve the Lord. And then he says, the gates of hell shall what? Not prevail. Can Satan prevail against the church? Not on your life. You know, the church is doing pretty good, you know that? It's doing pretty good. Uh, and, and people say, well, you know, Christianity is only this... Uh, much of a segment of the world. You know, that is not the issue. That is not the issue. Jesus said, I want you to take the gospel and I want you to preach it to everyone. And those who will believe, then they will be the church. They will be the church. And, and Christianity doesn't have to be the biggest segment. It just has to have the biggest witnesses, that's all. Uh, because the Bible says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And narrow is the way and few enter in. And so the church, is a, the church is a movement of witnesses. Uh, you know, Satan's been attacking the church for a long time, and the church is doing pretty good. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The five Christian martyrs that were killed down there in Ecuador fanned the flame of missionary enterprise that continues today even in our church. You know, churches come and go, and this is what, like one of my favorite Statements about the church. Churches come and go, but the church is here to stay. Always remember that. Churches come and go. How many churches can you drive by and uh, you, can, you can say to yourself, boy, that church used to be so on fire and people came to Christ and all sorts of good things, but now it's a doctor's office. You know, now they rent out rooms for 
uh, for businesses up there. Listen, don't let that rattle your cage. Uh, churches are for a time, that's all. Churches come and go. Uh, that particular building may be a doctor's office today, but the people in that church are, are the foundation of other churches. And when I think about that related to our church, many of the strongest people we have in our church, listen, you're from another church. Somebody else built something in you. We're just building on that foundation, that's all. And yet, it's great that we have this moment together. It's great that we can serve the Lord together in this church. But maybe one day, 20 years from now, and uh, somebody will drive down 88 and say, hey, see that big church up on the hill? That's a, that's a whole doctor's office now. You know, and those people, they're all, they fed other places. And uh, Satan didn't kill the church. The church is alive. The church is alive. When I think about the little church I came from in Sheridan, I think it's closed now, really. But I'll tell you, its ministry is still alive. It's alive. It's alive in the people who went there. It's alive in their children. It's alive in their children's children. And so uh, we cherish the moment today in time that our church, we can support missionaries and we can preach the gospel. Uh, and so Peter said, uh, listen, you're the Messiah, the son of the, of the living God. Jesus then begins to make some predictions in verse number 31. Look at it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, isn't this interesting? Peter said, you're the Messiah. Can you imagine the dream that he had for Jesus? Jesus is going to lead us out of the wilderness of the bondage of Rome. Oh, thank God. He is the Messiah. And then Jesus said, no, listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life. Now, that would explode your mind, wouldn't it? How could the, the great leader that's going to lead the nation of Israel out of bondage die? Uh, I'm going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. After three days, I'm going to rise. Wow. That's a revelation right there. A revelation of his future. This is his goal. Jesus was carrying out this plan. I like 2 Corinthians 5.22. Let's read this together. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I call this the great exchange. He made Jesus to bear our sins upon the cross so that, so that he could give to you and me the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying here is, is God says, I, wanna, I, I have an exchange for you. You give me your sins, I'll give you my righteousness. What a deal, huh? What a deal. And that's exactly what that verse is all about. That's what God wants from us. We, he wants us to come and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I have broken your law. I have offended your holiness. The only thing I have to give you is my sinfulness. And so I ask you then, Lord, to forgive me of my sin. And Jesus said, I just love to do that. I just love to do that. Here then is my righteousness. Let's make this exchange. Now, have you ever really made that exchange before? 
I know most of you in this church have today. But that's the exchange you have to make. And when I was a little kid growing up, our Sunday school teachers did the right job and they planted in my heart the fact that I needed a Savior. And even though I was a young child, I had broken the law of God. I had sinned against Him. I had offended the holiness of God. And because of that, I was separated and condemned, even as a kid, because I knew the difference. I was way beyond the age of accountability. Now, some of you, sometimes I question whether you're there or not. I don't know. The age of accountability. But I was way beyond the age of accountability, and I knew that I, that I was guilty in the, in the presence of God. And when I received Jesus as my Savior that, that evening in that little church at that little altar, I knew exactly what I was doing. I said, Lord, the only thing I have to give to you is my sin, my sinfulness. I'm sorry. And um, Jesus said, not audibly, but it could have been. Uh, listen, here's, you're forgiven. Take my righteousness. And I've told you this before. I floated home that night from church. Now, not everybody floats when they get saved. Listen, don't, don't get that in your mind. Don't think you have to float. I did. I floated home that night. And in that little house in Sheridan, Inselbrick House. You don't know what that is, I know. That little Inselbrick House. I sat and my heart overflowed with the love of Jesus and I told my mother, Mother, I feel so clean on the inside. And she said, you should, because you've just been washed in the blood of Christ. Uh, I've never been the same since. I have never been the same. Because I made that exchange. I humbled myself in the sight of God. I gave Christ my sins, and he said, that's, that's what I want. Just give it to me. And he gave me his righteousness. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, I ask you, have you, have you ever made that exchange? Um, Jesus was trying to tell Peter, Peter, I know you have a different plan for me. You want me to liberate Israel from the bondage of Rome, but I came for a bigger purpose. I came to die upon the cross for your sins. I came to take your sin upon myself and stand between you and the judgment of God so that you could be free for time and eternity. If you've never made that uh, decision for Christ, if you've never come to the Lord and said, Lord, here's my sins, I've offended you, I've broken your law, and I've broken your heart, uh, forgive me, Lord. I'm sorry about that. And I pour out my life to you in repentance, and I ask you to wash me in your mercy and grace and forgive me. I want to encourage you to do that today today, right now, right there in your seat. You can't find a better place than on this foggy Sunday morning that you look straight through the fog in and come to Christ. Dear Lord, we uh, thank you so much for your love today. We thank you for your word. We are just taken back by the power of it all, by the greatness of who you are. We pray that, uh, that your word will penetrate every heart. And, take, and Lord, all of us will take a piece of this message today that, and embrace it as a message from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together as we...
sing our invitation song this morning. And as we sing together, if you'd like to come and meet the Lord here at the altar, listen, I want to invite you to do that today. Just step out into the aisle and come and pray. If you'd like to pray for yourself or pray for a friend, uh, just feel free to do that as we sing this song.